This is the Personal Finance Show. And this is the Personal Finance Show. Today in the show, I have Desiree Ajik from HalfBank.com. Desiree is very interested in helping you be great at money. The best part is that she breaks it down in a way we can all understand. And this is sorely needed in the world of personal finance education. So what is HalfBanked? Well, HalfBanked uh, originally started because Desiree ran the numbers and it turned out that she would have to save half her income to achieve all of her savings goals. And what better accountability in publishing updates on the internet along the way? Two years later, and now she's the one giving the advice. Because she's been through it, and she's learned a lot. We all need a helping hand when it comes to meeting our financial goals, don't we? There's a reason why you might be good at engineering, or doctoring, or dentisting, or whatever it is you do to make money. It's because you're probably not super great when it comes to personal finance. Well, Desiree is. She can afford her dog, very expensive. Her new house, even more expensive and still meets her goal of saving 10% of her income before all that stuff. How does she do it? By paying attention, which is also known as budgeting and tracking. A budget is a tool for freedom. It's not a prison. The hard truth is you can't have everything, at least not all at once. So if you put your priorities in a budget, you actually know if you can afford them or not. I enjoyed chatting with Desiree at the FinCon Personal Finance Conference in Dallas, Texas, and I hope you enjoy listening to us. Half banked. Desiree is a personal finance blogger and a writer and just overall helper. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about Half Banked and what it is that Half Banked is or what you do. Thank you. Well, yes, so Half Banked is a personal finance blog and it originally started and the name, the story behind the name is that my goal was to save half my income. And I decided to write about it because a lot of the time you hear about people saving these crazy percentages of their income. And I know that 50% is outside of the bounds yeah, of normal. It sounds like a lot. It does sound like, it was a lot. And the reason I did it was a lot different than a lot of people I saw online saving a lot of their money. You see a lot of people doing early retirement and have these amazing goals that are so far outside of what most of us consider normal. I was doing it because I had looked at my goals, which I considered pretty reasonable. I wanted to buy a house. I wanted to have a dog. I just wanted to be able to do the things that everyone told me were the things I should expect to do in my 20s, even my late 20s. And the only way I could afford to do them was to save that much. When I looked at my timelines and I looked at how much money I needed, I was like, well, guess I gotta save more. So I started the blog to track my journey and it evolved into a way to blog about things that people, especially millennial women like me, should know about managing their money that no one was really talking about in a way that felt fun to me. Nobody tells you about this stuff. Nobody, no one tells nobody's you. Nobody's like, you know, <laughs> don't spend your whole paycheck, put some of it away. I mean, there's, there's books that you can read, but nobody tells you what books to read. And I, I want to go to what you said about uh, these early retirement people. Like the, the, I think the term here is fire, you know, financial independence, retire early. And you're right, they're retiring like 35 because like they're going to be living in an RV for the rest of their life or whatever. Things that maybe we can't relate to as much. 
It's true. And I think that personal finance, at the end of the day, it all comes down to choices. And that's an amazing choice for a lot of people, and the people who are doing it really love it. But I think what a lot of people holds them back from personal finance as a whole and learning about it is that they think that they're not going to have the power to make the choices that they want to make. So the obvious example is lattes. The latte is so demonized. The, the latte factor. And the avocado toast oh, factor the avocado now. Toast. Don't get me started. <laughs> but going at that, you hear, that's like the meme that everyone hears about personal finance is like, oh, well, they hate lattes, so I like my lattes, so I'm not going to learn about money. Yeah, I'm just going to go ahead and spend all my money because I'm never going to be able to save because I love lattes. Yes, exactly. And I think that the, the real problem with that and what I'm really continuing to push back against and fight against in this industry is being good at money doesn't mean you have to give up the things that you love. If you are spending intentionally and the latte is your one treat and you can afford it and it's in your budget, you can be amazing at money and drink as many lattes as you want as long as you plan for it. Well, and that's a good point. The idea of having a budget or having some kind of tracking is that you look at how much you're spending on lattes. You're actually, you're not blindly just buying lattes every day. You're seeing, okay, this is how much it is. This is how much I'm saving. This is how much I need to spend on everything else. Yeah, you know what? I do have enough and I can live my life. And isn't that awesome to have both? And it takes away all of the guilt. I mean, no matter what your thing is, if it's lattes, if it's expensive makeup, if it's having a dog, it can be an expensive thing, but if you know I have this amount of money to spend on it, you can spend that money guilt-free as long as you're planning for your other priorities. If this is a priority you want to spend for it, you don't have to do the like, oh, I'm spending on it, but I should feel really bad about this. Guilt-free spending is one of the best benefits of budgeting. It is the best. It's, you know, really people try to demonize all this stuff like you were blowing our money, but it's only when you don't have a budget or when you don't have some ability to track it that it's a problem. And I always look at a, at a budget as a freedom. People see it as, oh, I'm trapped by my budget. Oh, it's a prison. I'll never be able to have fun in my life. But it's, it gives you freedom to do what you want. It really does. And honestly, what you want is probably not what I want, is probably not what every individual wants. Exactly. And that's the power of it, is you're empowered to make those choices based on what you really care about. I mean, the amount I spend on my dog is what some people spend on travel in a year. Like, really good travel, too. My dog is not cheap. <laughs> <laughs> but that's your choice. Exactly. And, and, and it's a conscious choice. That's that's the whole point. Yeah. So uh, tell me a little bit about you before Half Bank. Like, how you know how were you living? How was, how was your money situation? And what made you, like, want to just jump into this? Well, it's so funny, too, because I always thought I was pretty good with money. Mm -hmm. And I was raised with a very money-conscious household. My mom got me to read a bunch of personal finance books, and she is amazing with money. So I benefited a lot from having early examples and early encouragement that this was not something to be afraid of. This was a fact of life. And then I graduated from school, and a lot of that stuck, too. I will say, when I graduated from school, I got my first full-time job, I knew, you know, you put 10% away for retirement, and you save an emergency fund. But then when I went to the bank, I said, okay, I have this 10%. I want to save it for retirement in an RSP and a TFSA because I didn't know the difference. <laughs> yeah. And they said, okay, well, you don't have enough money to invest yet. 
And I wait, wait, why, what, why would they say <laughs> that to you? How do you not have enough money? Well, and that's the funny part, is I was very fortunate. I came out of school with no debt and a little bit of money saved. So I had a few thousand dollars. Sure. But I didn't know enough about money to push back and say, yes, I do. Yeah. What are you talking about? Like, take my money. And so I just accepted it. I said, cool, you're in the bank and you're across this desk from someone in a suit. And you say, they're the expert. So you must know and you just go with it. And I lost out on some very good years of market growth, even if I had invested in a bank mutual fund at, you know, two and a half or three percent. Even in their worst product, it's still better than nothing. Exactly. And it would have been better than nothing, but I didn't know enough. And so it was about two or three years later, My salary had grown a bit. I was really looking at, I have all these new financial goals. Because at this point, I'm, I'm, you know, 25. I'm like, wow, 30 is is coming. I'm in my later 20s. I need to get my act together if I want to buy a house and if I want to get a dog. So I had looked at all of these things, looked at my goals, and had that wake-up moment of, I need to be a little bit more intentional with my money. Started with online banking. I opened up a Tangerine account, and that was a really good first step because it was so easy that it made me feel empowered to do more baby steps. I was like, I just saved $5 a month by not paying account fees. What's my next step? Yeah, it really starts with the simple things like that. You know, people don't think bank fees make a big difference or even, you know, mutual funds or, or fund fees in general, but they they do in the long run and uh, but seeing that thing a little bit, I remember when I got my first a dividend statement it was 66 cents and I said to my wife look look I made money from nothing I made money out of nothing she's like come back to me when it's 66 dollars um, and I did which, which is good and that was a little bit better for her but I guess it was just the idea of making money or saving money on fees or whatever it is in, in, in your circumstance out of nothing by just you're making the right choices or putting money into something instead of spending it, say. Exactly, and I think for financial products, it's there's this whole world, I mean, the finance industry as a whole is made up of these products that people sell you, and a lot of times you don't know anything about them until you buy them the first time. So for example, I went to get car insurance when I got my first car, I was so excited about the car, but I knew nothing about the process. And so I literally asked my mom, I said, how do I buy car insurance? She said, I will give you the name of my broker. So I emailed the one broker, said, this is the car I'm getting, can you sell me insurance? She said, yes, this is the price. And I paid it for a year, and it turns out it was about $60 more than I should have been paying because she didn't compare quotes, and I didn't compare quotes, and I didn't even know how to buy this financial product. And that's the kind of thing that I think we need to talk more openly about, and we need fun resources to access so that when you go to buy your first car, you know that you can compare rates from all the different auto insurers online. You can sign up online, there's a phone call involved, but you don't have to just go with the finance guy that your parents have been using for forever. Which is all that we seem to know. And so speaking of resources and fun ones, you have these, right? Well, thank you. I I like to think I do. So I've been blogging. These are the kind of things I like to blog about because I share stories about my own experiences. I've literally written a how not to buy car insurance blog post telling my own story because I've done this. I've been there. And I think it's more exciting to learn from people who have been there recently as opposed to the six-year-old guy in a suit 
who has no idea what it's like to not know how to buy car insurance. The world is changing because we have so many options, as, as you said now, and we can compare rates. But also, yeah, you don't have to go to the one place where the guy's been doing it forever and, and he's been selling it at the price that the price is. There's just a lot of choice. And so, yeah, let's talk about it. Yeah, 100%. And I mean, there's even beyond blogs, there's so many great resources. Even in blogs, I mean, pick your poison. There are so many different financial blogs as we're learning at this conference. I mean, there's what, 1,700 people here who are in financial media. And most of them either have a blog, a podcast, or in some kind of connected industry. And I guess you maybe have to be a little careful uh, even in that situation. The best way that I've had to think about it is one of the bloggers that I follow, she runs a blog called She Picks Up Pennies. And she's an American blogger, but she wrote this great post about you diversify your investments, you should diversify your information sources. So don't take my word for anything. Read 10, 20 different perspectives on personal finance, because I am all for, you know, buying a latte and not retiring early. But maybe you want to balance that out with a different perspective from someone who is retiring early. How did they arrive at that decision? What did they do to get there? And maybe that's more right for you. Explore the financial blogosphere and pick a couple different perspectives to balance out the information you're getting. Yeah, and personally, if we talk about investments, I'll recommend something really diversified, a portfolio of, of exchange-traded funds, probably from a robo-advisor, because it's about simplifying, set it and forget it. But maybe that's not your style. Maybe maybe you want to do that a little bit, but you want to take a little more risk, and that's your prerogative, especially if it's extra money. So you know, how do I buy a Canadian stock, or how do I invest in solar bonds because I want to be environmental, or how do I even pick one of those funds that we're talking about, but that is a sustainable fund, say mm-hmm. maybe doesn't invest in bad companies. It's really an individual thing. You know, personal finance is personal, right? Exactly. So what kind of resources do you have on your site? So I have actually a couple different resources that people can download. So one, you can opt into all of them. I have a resource library. So it's filled with all the different downloads that I've created for the site. But the best and most popular one I find, it's called the One Minute Budget. One minute, that's it? One minute, that's it. 60 seconds or less, you can have a budget. Okay. And what it does is it breaks down a percentage-based budget. So this is the tool that I wish I had had coming out of university. Because when you're making those decisions, you have your first full-time job, and you have this salary, and it gives you this monthly amount of money, and you think, wow, that's so much money. The best way to make decisions is to look at the percentages of the money you're spending. So you've got, you know, you recommend 30% of your income, no more, should go to rent and housing expenses. Sometimes if you're living in an expensive city, if you're starting your career there, that might have to fluctuate. But then what you can do is you put in your salary in this one minute budget calculator and it pumps out the recommended percentages. So, so like it gives a benchmark, you a, like a standard. Exactly, yeah. a benchmark. And then if your rent does need to be higher than the recommended, you can adjust and see where else you're going to scale down. Maybe you need to scale down the amount you spend on food. Maybe you don't need that much on your food budget. Maybe your transportation budget is much less than recommended because you bike everywhere. Yeah. It's making those choices in an informed way and looking at the whole of your budget in percentage-based, and just adjusting from there. Because everyone's income is different, right? So if you're like, 
spend $500 on groceries a month. Well, that might not make a lot of sense if you only make 30 grand a year, but maybe for somebody who makes 80, that makes sense. So percentage is a comparable thing, as opposed to you know how much, I see questions all over on Quora, all over the internet, how much should I spend on this? How much should I spend on that? How do I turn this into that? And I think people want uh, a blanket answer, and it's more of a relative thing. It's it's where you live. Like I, you know, I, I picked a place when I lived in Toronto that was uh, a walk to work, more expensive, but I don't have any transportation costs. Exactly. And while I'm all for yes, you can get whatever you want as long as you plan for it. At a certain point, the numbers just are the numbers, and there are going to be trade-offs, which is where the budgeting process gets a little bit less entertaining and a little bit less fun. You do have to be aware of what trade-offs you're willing to make to optimize your budget to have the most things you want and the least things you can't. So I think the key word there is aware, awareness. It's pretty much everything, because what we do is we think that we're doing the right thing, but we don't know. I want to be investing, I'm not sure how. What do I spend on this and that? But if you're not actually paying attention to what you're doing, there's no way to figure this out. Even if you talk to, to you or to me about it, the first thing that we do is say, hey, fill this thing in and, and <laughs> figure out what it is. Now, you might not even know, right? So mm -hmm. what, uh, how does someone figure it out? What, are, like, what tools would you recommend for someone to, say, track their spending? Honestly, and this is a less popular option okay, yeah. with a lot of people. A lot of people don't like to start here. Sure. I always say spreadsheets. I love spreadsheets, but you're right. A lot of people don't. Yeah, They're and scary. it's totally fine to start with something like Mint, something like You Need a Budget that pulls in your transactions and categorizes it for you. It's a great starting point, but the reason why I advocate so strongly for spreadsheets is that it it's much more active. If you are taking all the transactions from your bank, putting them into a spreadsheet every few days or once a week, it really makes you look at it and take an active role, which is really helpful if your goal is awareness. I find that something like Mint, I mean, I've had Mint running on my bank account for like four years now, but it was so passive. It told me after I had gone over budget. It told me a monthly recap at the end of the month, but I wasn't changing any behavior based on that. Because you should go in, if you use Mint to track, you should go in to make sure that it's putting stuff in the right place. But kind of when that's set up, you don't really have to go in that much. And you're right, it's reviewing after the fact. So if you kind of go, like what would you say, on a weekly or a daily basis even? Every few days I'd yeah. find. So it's not daily, it's not something you have to do every day. Sure. Once a week got a little bit too removed from purchases, yeah. which is really interesting because even as someone who tracks their spending, who writes about this online, yeah. I can still easily, for, I'm like, I open up my credit card after a few days, I'm like, oh right, I did spend that much. Oh, or like, I things. forgot about that lunch <laughs> that I went out for. You gotta look at the calendar and say, what did I do on that day? Where was I? Actually, and it just goes to illustrate how easy it is to be totally divorced from any awareness of where your money is going unless you're being intentional about it. Exactly. So you had a course, and, and maybe you're still offering it, called the Quick Budget Fix. I do, I, yes. I, I wanted to check it out, so I signed up for it. And I, what I liked about it was, first of all, the daily sort of task aspect mm -hmm. of it, and also just the whole thing is about making it easy and accessible, right? And that's, that's, we talk about this a lot, personal finance. It seems complicated. It's really not. And let's just have really easy conversations. Exactly, because it's so overwhelming. If you're not in, I mean, we're in the personal finance world. 
But if you're We're a biased. little bit removed from it, it seems overwhelming because there are, there's all the financial products you need to learn about and there's all this budgeting advice and then there's investing and then there's insurance and there's all of these things. I find it's really empowering to be able to do one quick thing once a day and make progress. I actually just got an email from someone who also took the course the first time I offered it and she said six months later she's still tracking her spending and it's been very powerful and it was That's wonderful amazing. to get that feedback. Yeah. So I'm going to be relaunching it in January okay. as a month-long program just to work through with people tracking their spending for the full month and doing the lessons as part of that so that it leads with awareness and then incorporates the intentional budgeting on top of it. So like we said, awareness is, is the main thing. You First of all, you have to want to be involved with this. You have to want to make a change because we can't force you to start looking at stuff if, if you're not into it. But what helps is, and this could be seen as a negative word, but accountability. Everybody needs a little bit of help. It, like, why does everyone think that they can work their full-time job all day and then have the motivation to be like gung-ho about personal finance? You might have a little bit of motivation, but you need a little bit of helping hand and you your uh, daily thing would do this. Right? Yeah, 100%. And there's also a Facebook community as part of it. And I found that that was one of the best things is everyone could talk to each other so that there was a community of people who were going through it at the same time, working through the same tasks and running into the same roadblocks. So a lot of the time, a task like looking at your actual spending for the week was scary and it was it really confronts a lot of things that a lot of us are very good at ignoring and there's a lot of emotions about that and I think it's easier to go through that with a group of people who are at the same place doing the same things so you can talk about it because there's outside of us gossiping about money in Dallas there's not a lot of places where you can openly ask someone questions about money. Yeah, that's true. And and what I noticed in the Facebook group was that it seemed to be helping you as well. Like, you know, maybe things you hadn't thought of. Right? Exactly. And so people would ask, I'm really having trouble with this thing, or can I do it this way? And, and you might be like, well, you know what, I never thought about it, but that sounds great, or, you know, what might work for you, or here's another way to look at it. And that's what this discussion is about. A hundred percent. And that's the thing too, is everyone's budget is going to be different. And I was so happy to be able to offer that support in the Facebook group because honestly, this is like a universal truth is if you have a question, someone else has that question. It's probably true. So you try to talk about things that happen in your life and that's what we should all be talking about because if you want to find out about how to save on groceries, there's a billion blogs out there about that. But it's ones from a perspective that you might be able to relate to. Those are important. And so you just bought a house. I did. And you're getting married? Yes, next so, summer. Next summer. So you've been writing about those a little bit lately? I have, yes. And so what's the toughest one, the, the wedding or the house? Well, I'm glad we did the house first because yeah. the house is definitely going to be the more expensive purchase. Okay, yeah. <laughs> But it's actually really good to work through these kind of joint money decisions. Sure. And it's actually really helpful to have the experience I have really looking at my budget and making those intentional choices because it actually makes wedding planning a lot easier. It's okay. very similar to your monthly budget. You probably have a fairly set amount of funds that are available either through you and your partner, maybe family is helping, maybe they're if you're not. Lucky. Exactly. Yeah. And so you look at okay, we have X amount of money. Now let's prioritize what's important to us and then we'll allocate money there and we'll see what we can't 
afford based on that. So we've allocated, you know, we have their top three priorities, that's most of our budget, I guess we're not doing these other three things, or we need to find ways to do those other things very, very frugally, which is exactly the same as budgeting. I mean, I do a lot of things very frugally, or I omit a lot of things from my monthly spending so that I can afford my priorities of a house and a dog. I mean, I don't travel much internationally. I take very frugal vacations. I'm a big fan of the staycation. Yes. And that doesn't fit for a lot of people, and that's fine. But whenever people ask how I can afford to have a house and have a dog, that's why is I made those choices really intentionally and I frugalize or give up other things that aren't as important to me. Well, and probably one of the things you did too was focus on paying down debt first. So can you tell uh, about that story? How was, uh, what kind of, were you ever in debt and did you have to pay that off? So interestingly enough, and this is where I have a lot of privilege around debt in that I've never really experienced consumer okay. debt. So right now, I we just bought a new car, yeah. new to us. Okay. It is a used car, yeah. but we took out a car loan. And that was my first, this is really my first experience with debt. And we have a plan for it. Oh, we yeah. allocate extra money towards it whenever, I mean, tax returns. We already have a plan okay. for our 2018 when the tax returns come in, how much of that is going to go towards the car loan and we want to pay it off before the term. So we took out a three-year car loan. But it really is my first experience with debt, that and my mortgage. I Again, I was very lucky to have family support during school, so I didn't have student debt. And again, my mother was an amazing financial educator in her own way, so I, nev I always knew if you have a credit card, you have to pay it off. This is a non-negotiable. Yeah, these are the things that we need to know when we're younger. And it is very lucky for you to have someone in your life who, who kind of helped you set up this, uh, at least the basics, because those are important. Like the investing stuff, that can come in your 20s. Mm -hmm. But maybe when you're a teenager is when you need to learn the debt lessons. So no debt, so that's good. And so you're probably focusing on that for the wedding as well? Oh yes, we are paying for the wedding in cash. There is not a chance in the world. My mother would disown me if I took out debt to have a party. She would say, you should get some cookies at Costco, have it in your backyard if you can't afford to spend the money. That's right. But you know, a lot of people don't know that that should be a priority. A lot of people think the wedding is it and it'll pay for itself. And what I learned is you you might get some, the money back in gifts and yeah. such and, and contributions, but you should never plan for that. So maybe it's important to realize that even though you think you might make it back, you should never intentionally go into debt for, like you said, it really is a party. It is. It's a fancy party for all of your family <laughs> and you just happen to you know be legally getting married at around the same time. And that's the thing is I get, so one of the reasons we're having a bigger party than we had originally thought we would is we wanted to be able to invite our whole family. Yes. That said, you can have your whole family together for not that much money if you're willing to compromise elsewhere. It becomes those compromises. So you have to keep in mind, you know, your top one or two priorities. If it's a lot of people and a really good time, have it in a park. Serve cake and fruit punch in a park. Get everyone together for a big picnic. That's yeah. still, you're still going to have a great time. You're still going to have everyone there. There's so many different options of ways to do it. The good thing about today is you get to pick and choose the traditions that you keep, you yes. know, that you continue with. And I just want everyone to not think that they have to do 
Well, I, I guess this is sort of a, a, a non-conformist thing to say, but you don't have to do what you're told, right? The best part, and this is a line I have actually used okay. in the wedding planning process, is if someone tells you that it's, oh, well, you have to have a wedding shower, or you have to have a bachelorette party, or you have to have tons of flowers, you can say, wonderful, if it's important to you, you pay for it. <laughs> I like, like that. Okay, family, you want this? You I'm happy it. to have exactly. you pay for it. That's fantastic. <laughs> I think it's a good line. I mean, for some families, it might be risking conflict, but uh, <laughs> I think you got to stand up for what you want because it is your wedding and no one else's. And it's your money and no one else's. Exactly. No one else is going to own your financial choices. So you're going to be holding the, the debt uh, bag at the end of the day. Yes, you will. And uh, everyone else is going to be happy, but you won't be. Yep. And you, know, you need to be happy. That's the first <laughs> thing, right? So uh, uh, how about the house? Is that a happy choice? A very happy yes? choice. Yes, okay, good. Very happy. It's something that we both wanted yep. and we saved up for it. The process was fairly smooth and we're just very happy there. It's wonderful. And you know, we could talk a little bit about buying not too much house. Yes. Was that uh, one of your focuses? You know, uh, I had Sean Cooper on the podcast. He wrote Burn Your Mortgage. <laughs> he paid off his mortgage in three years, which is insane for most people, but he did it. It was his goal. Like you said, we make our choices, right? Yeah. Sean made the choice to not, you know, do travel, to not have a dog, to not have, like, his choice was his house. Yeah. First and foremost, probably since he was like an early teen, right? Mm -hmm. He was doing this. But uh, he has some really good lessons. One of them is don't buy too much house. Exactly. And how did you make sure that you followed that? So first and foremost, we looked at different mortgage calculators and okay. we looked at beyond just the mortgage, the total cost of ownership and the total cost of the things we wanted to keep in our budget. Okay. I took a very hard line. We cannot buy so much house that we can't still comfortably save at least 10% for retirement. Okay, that's each. good. I like that. We 100%, that was a non-negotiable. So that each, has yeah. always been my non-negotiable hard line, yep. even when I was just starting my career, it was really difficult. It's a hard line for me. And so we worked from there and worked out how much we could reasonably spend on a mortgage that balanced all of our other financial goals and left the door open for other possibly tiny human-sized financial goals in the future. Which, you know, even if it may not be in your immediate plans, if it's in your head at all, you should think about this because you want to buy the house so you could stay in for, what do you say, at least 10 years? I'm hoping that we are there until we are too old to walk up the stairs. So you bought your, your, your first and last house. We did. And the thing that you have to think about with that is if you're going to be somewhere for 10, 15, 20 years, your life could drastically change. Okay. And that's why I see people buying houses that may not be where they want to be in five years. The switching costs alone in buying and selling a house are so high Man. that it makes so much sense to buy somewhere that is going to be flexible enough to suit your needs for the next 10, 20 years. You know, what people get caught up in is they go to look at a house and they think, oh, this house is great. And oh no, it's like $50,000 more or even more than what we uh, had budgeted for. But, but it's an investment, they say. Oh, but it's an investment. It, you know, this will, it'll go up. It, it's, this is a, you know, this is a, a good choice because it, it, we're investing in our future. What do you say to that one? I say that housing is a lifestyle purchase. If it is the house you live in, you need to be able to afford to invest 
elsewhere because people get into this mindset of the house is an investment. Okay, if it is, you're already paying a huge amount of carrying costs for this, air quotes, investment. Yes, exactly. And they are things that don't go into the calculation. So if housing grows 5% a year, amazing. But what people aren't looking at is you pay about 1% of your house's value every year in property taxes. Mm -hmm. People estimate that about 1% of your house's value every year is going to go towards maintenance and repairs, averaged out over the course of your ownership. Okay. Then another 1%, maybe 2%, is eaten by inflation. And so over time, that 5% growth that looks great on paper, the carrying costs are eating a lot of that based on the fact that you're owning. And yes, you don't have to pay rent, but you're also paying mortgage interest on top of that. So there's just all these costs that I think people need to be aware of. And again, I bought a house, so I am aware of this and I think it's a great lifestyle purchase, but you can't buy more than you can afford. And my big test for that is if you can still save 10% of your money for retirement and afford the house that you bought, great. You can buy your house, go for it, but you just need to have other investments. And, and that's like, also you said, oh, if it goes up 5%, great, there's no, guarantee of anything. Oh no, there is not. Housing is not this magical investment that is going to go up forever that you also get to live in. And people need to know this because probably for the past 10, 15 years, housing has been going up. As interest rates have been going down, which is not the trend anymore. That's right. And so just because something has happened, it doesn't mean it's always going to be that way. Exactly. Right? So that's probably a, a good way to, a good lesson to, to end this on. And uh, so this is really great to be here in Dallas at, at FinCon, surrounded by all of these financial people and just, you know, talk about things that I think are really important, so. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. It was wonderful being on the podcast and it was great having time to actually sit down and connect at the conference. Exactly.